Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today, I want to talk about a a pretty controversial and sensitive topic, the intersection of the gospel and the social justice movement as we see it in Western society. Whoops, you can tell I am nervous. Dropping things already. This was uh, something the missions committee asked me to talk about as a result of not really having a normal missions conference. Uh, We decided that we would try to deal with a... uh, with a topic that related to what's going on in the world and how it impacts the gospel and the church. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be delving into this uh, subject. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the race issues going on in the Western world, uh, a little bit next week in particular, about how it's impacting views of human sexuality because sort of they're all coming from the same academic tree, some of these movements, and a few other things as well. And what I would ask from you is grace. Grace, because I was asked to do this. And actually, I sent a text to, now my phone just dropped, and so it kind of went out, you know. And so now I, oh, here we go. I've got it back, so I want you to hear. This is a text um, I sent to my boss yesterday, which would be the chairman of the board. And I can't, oh, here it is. Okay, and I can't get it up right now because my phone was dropped. Okay, there we go. And so I asked him, I said, By the way, I said, will the missions committee help me find my next job after missions conference is over in light of, you know, the outcry that this could cause? And what I got back was laughed at, by the way, will the missions committee help me find my next job? So again, a little more grace, even a little more grace than I'm getting from the chairman of the board because this is not something I would necessarily want to uh, dive into. Uh, But it is very relevant today. 2,800 years ago, one of the most popular statements that God ever made was said for the first time. Israel, as a nation, was prospering greatly. This is the 8th century B.C. Israel was doing incredibly well. It was almost like the glory days of David and Solomon. So things were all good. But Israel was wandering from God's laws. Foreign gods were sort of creeping into the national consciousness. People were starting to basically worship the true God and sort of syncretize other religions in as well. And also the wealthy in that era were exploiting the poorer classes. So one of the great sins of the nation was actually what we would call injustice in the social realm, economically. And God was actually getting ready to judge his people. He allowed them to be invaded not long after that as a way to sort of get their attention. And I want you to listen to God's appeal. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, What shall, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, the prophet's basically saying, what will it take to sort of get God to be pleased with me again? The sacrificial system, myself, 
And then here's this famous verse. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Two of those phrases have to do with our, our horizontal relationships with other people. To do justice, to love kindness. It has to do with how we relate to those around us. To walk humbly with our God. It talks about the vertical relationship we have with God, which should drive the other two. Micah 6.8. It's like a t-shirt verse, you know? Uh, 50 years after this, every Hebrew child was wearing this to youth group on their t-shirt. And we do today. It's sort of logo-worthy. That was 2,800 years ago. God wants justice in all human relationships. It's incredibly important to him. Now, it's justice that's based on his commands and his ethics. It's justice that's based on our ethical response to God manifested in our horizontal relationships. Technically, when we exhibit justice in our attitude and our hearts towards other people, what we're doing is we're honoring God's image in others. When we want justice for all, the reason is because people have value. From the moment of conception until their last breath, the image of God is the most important, valuable commodity on planet Earth. No matter how marred, no matter how broken, no matter whether it's in the most aged or the handicapped or the unborn, the image of God has greater value than anything on planet Earth because we alone reflect who God is. The animal kingdom reflects sort of the creative imagination of God. We reflect the personhood of God. So justice is important. About 45 days ago, a letter was sent south of the border. So we'll talk about U.S. politics. It'll be less controversial. Actually, that's not true up here. Not only that, but you all think you know more about politics than the Americans who live here, which is kind of insulting, but we'll just pass on that. All right. About 45 days ago, a letter was sent by the National Association of School Boards in America to the president of the United States, the Biden administration. The attorney general, who represents the Justice Department, responded to it, and there is an outcry of biblical proportions unfolding south of the border because of it, because people are worried about the federal government being weaponized against parents. The letter sought help because of the parent backlash against the social justice movement at school board meetings in local communities. Because parents are concerned about the bathroom policies, the transgender policies, having boys and girls bathrooms, having girls and boys bathrooms. They're concerned about the teaching of critical race theory. They're also concerned about mask mandates for kids. That's another issue, but that's going on as well. But here's the point. The letter referred to parents as, and this is a direct quote, the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. Follow-up interviews will show educators basically dismissing parents as not equipped to know what's good for their kids. In other words, we're the professionals. You guys are stupid. Just let us do our job and get out of the way, mom and dad. The NASB has since apologized 
But when you're writing a letter and you're the National Association of School Boards, words are chosen for a reason. There's no accident that parents were referred to as domestic terrorists. And I'm not here to defend all parents in the US. There's some crazy people down there. I would admit, and I know you Canadians would agree with that, there's some crazy people south of the border. You don't want to just let any of them come up here and take jobs. Like in ministry, pastor, you don't want that. You've got to be careful of that. You've got to watch what you hire. Because once they're here, it's hard to get rid of them. So there's some crazy people down there. But I want you to know, not all these parents were white parents who are upset about critical race theory. I guarantee that. Not all these people are, are biased, bigoted, nasty people who are concerned about transgender policies being taught to their kids. They're not all bad people. They're not all racist. They're not all transphobic. They're not all homophobic. Are they pushing back against something that we should all embrace? Or is there more to the story? Now, this is not going to be a typical sermon, partly because the sermon may end up with a crucifixion at the end, but other than that, it's not a typical sermon because there's not a text for this. I introduced a text to show the value of justice in the heart of God, but there's not a text to talk about the phenomena that's going on in Western society that affects race, sex, class, economics, capitalism. It's tied all together from an academic standpoint. We're going to talk about that. So what I'm trying to do is create a little bit of a systematic comparison of a biblical view of justice and then compare that to what your kids are being taught in school, and particularly when they get to university, but even before then now. It's all the way down into grade school in certain arenas. So first, let's look at what biblical justice involves. And I'm not saying everything in the world needs to match this, but let's start with the Bible. We're Christians. We should be people of the book. So let's talk about what biblical justice actually involves. Number one, conforming to God's moral standards. So when you're talking about biblical justice, God is talking about everything that he wants done in our lives personally and in all of our human relationships. So it's not isolated to the kinds of things we're talking about right now in the world around us, but it's conformity to all of God's moral standards. And in light of all of those standards, giving others just treatment as God's image bearers. Again, the motivation from, a, from the Bible anyway, from God's standpoint, to be just is because you have the greatest value of anything else in the universe. You have value, that's therefore I care that you are treated with fairness and justice. And impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, this is when we act for justice. We're impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, and meeting out punishment for wrongdoing, reserved for authorities in the home, the church, and the state. And God talks about sort of God-ordained authorities in all of those arenas. Now, when you're talking about ethics and standards, that may not sound like justice to you, but when you're looking at the Bible, the words justice and righteousness, are they're like, they're like cousins. They're right in there. They've got the same root word. The root word for both of those terms that we interpret as justice and righteousness is a Greek word, dikaios. So there's all sorts of forms of that, but context is typically going to determine which word you use. So when I obey God you're probably going to say, well then, Paul, you're being righteous. If I obey God, you're not going to say you're being just. You're going to say, if you are obeying God and you're keeping his standard, Paul, you're being righteous. 
When I'm interacting with others and trying to draw everyone to the same standard, I might be trying to exhibit justice or righteousness. When I'm righting wrongs, you're going to drop the word righteous and you're going to say, I'm meeting out justice. And so those words are they're very close. They're used almost interchangeably. They have the same root. So righteous is the standard Justice is sort of how we get there and how we bring everyone else to that standard. Now, a couple of key points, and these are important. Justice in the Bible always revolves around God's standard. So there can be unjust laws. In fact, Martin Luther King in U.S. history was one of the people who really pointed this out when he started talking about civil disobedience and pushing back against government policies, and he was right, obviously. When we have unjust laws... That's not justice. Just because the government says something is right or wrong does not make it so. When Hitler was telling everyone to narc on their Jewish neighbors so they could be rounded up and exterminated to put into camps, it was right to defy him. It was very hard to do, and most of the church didn't do it. There were swastikas in churches. It's very hard to stand against the power of the state, but it is right to resist. It is right to disobey when the basic foundation of government has been thwarted and they are not doing what they need to do. It is right to resist. Martin Luther King made a lot of points about that and got in some trouble for it, obviously. Justice exists to right a wrong done to an image bearer. Again, we said that's the basic for ethics in the New Testament. Justice exists to allow the harmed one to find resolution and the or restitution, maybe, and the offender as well. So justice is so that somebody who's been wronged can hopefully find fairness in the system, in society, or in a personal relationship. And what's usually left out of this is actually the person who's caused the harm finds some resolution in it as well. There are people who will commit crimes. I would make a very bad criminal because I can't keep my mouth shut. You know, if I did something really wrong, I'd probably be like, hey, I, you know, this, I did this. You know, and sharing it and eventually get back to the cops and end up in a minimum security Canadian prison. But the reality is, you know, that's because we need restitution as well when we're the offender. And justice sort of brings both together and it allows the offended to know that things have been made right and it allows the offender to actually have peace with it as well. If they go to prison, it's sort of like they're paying their debt to society. We call it that, actually. And justice is equally available to all as God's image bearers. And that's where societies around the world have typically gotten justice wrong. It's often not been used to help everybody. Justice involved due process, witnesses, and rules. Now you may not know this because we're trying to dismantle the system in the Western world to some degree, but we have the best legal systems in the world in the Western world because there's what we call due process. It doesn't exist everywhere in the world. Here, if somebody is uh, accused of something, there are supposed to be witnesses. And now you might not need witnesses, you might just need you know, one of the million video cams that's videoing your life or somebody's cell phone, but it all serves as evidence if you've done something wrong. There are rules that affect what it takes to convict somebody of wrongdoing that actually comes from the Old Testament. Western society has based its legal standards on Old Testament law, and it's the best in the world. Our legal codes did not just come out of a vacuum. But this is incredibly important because we're losing due process in our world today. And we'll talk about that later. 
And finally, individuals were held accountable only for their choices, not the choices of others. Now, this is a big deal because we're going to find that what's going on today in some of the social justice movement does not believe this. In fact, there are a couple of passages in the Old Testament. One of them is Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, where it talks about the sins of the fathers will be visited, passed on to the third and fourth generation. It seems like, well, that is very capricious of God if he's literally taking the sins of my great-great-great-great-grandfather and putting them on me or blaming them uh, on me. And, and that's not what the passage means. I believe what's going on there is it's an indication that we naturally pass on our sins to our kids. Environment matters. You know, if you're going to be a bad parent in a certain area, if you're going to, you know, if you have a home full of drugs or something like that, you, you might pass it on to your kids. It becomes a generational sin. If you are a racist, you might pass it on to your kids because you're probably saying things while they're growing up and you're modeling it. If you've got other dysfunction in your home, you're probably going to model that for your kids and pass it on. I believe that's what that passage means because the prophets make it very clear that it's not that God will judge kids for what their parents do. They'll naturally pass it on. But in Ezekiel, it makes it very clear that, that parents will not pay for the sins of their children and children will not pay for the parent, sins of their parents. So the prophet makes it very clear that you are only accountable to God for the things that you actually do. That's biblical justice. Now, it's not fair to expect any modern secular movement to necessarily match what the Bible says. We're people of the book. We care what the Bible says. But there are a lot of organizations you know, that come out of our world that are not necessarily trying to be biblical. A lot of organizations that are good organizations have secular roots. Many organizations are neither moral, amoral, or immoral. They just are. We want to compare this to the Bible, but a lot of things don't come from the Bible. Many organizations are outside of the scope of what God addresses. We would call those extra-biblical. They're outside of the scope of what God addresses. God doesn't talk about the math club. God doesn't talk about the chess club. God doesn't talk about the cat lovers club for obvious reasons. Because cat lovers club have like an origin in pagan religions, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. But the social justice movement is using the language that we use. And justice is commanded for us. And we care about justice and reconciliation. So we should hopefully be able to find overlap between what's going on secularly around us and the Bible. But do we, and how much? Those are the issues. Do we find overlap? Should we be all involved in the modern social justice movement? Or should we be doing something different? Is it biblical? Is it hostile to our faith? All right. The social justice movement. Now, I don't want to create a straw man, because that's not fair. You know, put up something that's kind of, well, it, it's marginally a part of it. So I think I've hit the mainstream here. You might take issue with something here. But it has roots in ideological critical theory, which I'll explain in a little bit. It divides humanity, and this is probably the key issue, especially when it relates to, well, not just race, all things. We're going to talk more about race today than next week. Next week we're going to talk about sexuality. But it divides humanity between oppressed groups and oppressors. If there's one thing that you remember from today, that is a really great sort of statement about what critical theory does. It divides humanity between oppressed groups and oppressors. You're one or the other. 
You're, you're not an innocent bystander. You're an oppressor or you're oppressed. And this oppression and this division extends to race, class, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, physical ability, age, weight, etc. And the goal of the social justice movement, and again, critical theory, is to liberate these groups that are not the oppressors, but the oppressed. You know, the, the opposite side of race, the opposite side of class, sex, sexual orientation, the, the group that's the other needs to be liberated and potentially in that process redistribute power and resources, certainly power. Now, as we begin to dissect the ideology behind the movement, I want to say a couple of things. A desire for fairness and justice lies deep in every human heart. It reflects God's image. I'm not saying it reflects the fact that you want God's image honored in others. I'm saying the fact that you care about justice is a reflection of God's image in you. It's sort of God's moral code written on your heart. Now, it's often been suppressed in people around the world. The modern social justice movement is largely a response to U.S. history and to some degree Canadian history, which we'll talk about. But that's what's going on. This is coming out of the West primarily. But the reality is the world has rarely lived out God's ideals anywhere. I'm not a great historian, but I can rattle off atrocities that have taken place just about everywhere on this planet without having to do any research, just from living for the 41 years on this planet that I've lived. Being human has not been easy on planet Earth. The U.S. Constitution, the Canadian, you know, similar document. Thank you. I knew that. Thank you, Bernie. I've got to be a better Canadian, and I'm working so hard at it. I'll talk to you in the foyer about that afterwards. The U.S. Constitution is probably almost a perfect document, but it wasn't applied to Native peoples and blacks. That was very clear. The document itself is one of the greatest documents in the history of humanity. But somehow, they basically avoided two major racial groups in its implementation. And so there's a great stain of sin on America because of that. And there's a stain in Canada for similar reasons. There was, actually, a Canadian told me there's actually some slavery in Canada as well, and people were escaping from Canada into Michigan. Did you know that? Nothing like the U.S. South, but it happened here too. And certainly the issues with the indigenous population, I think we would all agree, do not exactly follow the Canadian Charter. So we can talk about the West and its sins, but I just want to walk around the world for a second, talk about how humanity has treated humanity. India has a history of a caste system which means if you're not born into the right caste, you virtually have no value, and you can't get out of the system and move up. There's no pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know, get a better job and a better station in life. Afghanistan, the Taliban, treatment of women. Australia, where aboriginals were hunted like animals. You ever seen the movie with, uh, oh, what's the movie called? 
with Tom Selleck that deals with Quigley Down Under. Thank you, Bob. Quigley Down Under. It's a great movie. Asia. Russia and China have long histories of genocide. Japan in World War II. The comfort women in the Philippines that were used as sex slaves for Japanese soldiers. You go to those parts of the world and those people do not like each other to this day. I went to Cambodia and I wouldn't have thought, well, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, you know, they all get along. They can't stand each other. Massive racism from people that from the West you might think, well, they kind of seem like the same group. They're not the same group. And you can tell them apart physically. They don't, but they do not like each other. South America, the Mayans, that culture ate an apple off the crabby apple tree and heads rolled. That was funny, actually. The Middle East, a 4,000-year-old grudge that is not going away. The human family has, throughout all of history, failed to see the human family as valuable. Even in Africa, where people have suffered the greatest plight, there were some tribes helping slavers to capture their enemies, selling them into the slave trade. African against African. And obviously some people groups have fared worse than others. In North America, blacks and native peoples. But does critical theory get us justice? So let's talk about critical theory a little bit, which is basically the, the academic basis of the social justice movement. Critical theory, now I'm gonna say something here and some of you are gonna say, oh, there, he's saying a straw, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not building a straw man because if you wanna be a Marxist in your sort of uh, financial orientation, I'm okay with that, I'm not. Um, I would believe, I believe that sort of a compassionate, generous capitalism raises the tide of most people's existence, but we don't have to agree on that. But critical theory actually originated in Marxism as people were frustrated it was taking too long to create sort of societal fairness and equity. So there was a communistic element, a Marxist element, and they're saying this is just taking too long. And so critical theory became sort of an academic theory in Marxism in the 1920s. And it stayed alive in academia in humanities departments in the West. So if you went to a very, very liberal college, this would have sort of been part of your, you know, part of your academic theory, maybe part of you know, some other classes, et cetera. And it's been rebirthed in the West, probably really even in the 80s and 90s, not just recently, but it's taken a while to sort of be born into the culture. It's been rebirthed in the West as much more than critical race theory. It wants to liberate people not just from actual oppression, but from ideas and beliefs that it believes create oppressors and oppressed groups. So it's not just trying to help people who are hurting or help people who've been mistreated. It's, it's trying to sort of undo Western society in such a way that the people who've created norms lose that power. Andrew Sullivan says, and this is a great quote, I love this quote, we all live on campus now. You know, it used to be you'd see riots and, you know, 
left-wing universities on the West Coast, you know, sort of the, the liberal side of Berkeley, you know, not the ones who are gonna work for Google, but the ones who are getting, you know, liberal arts degrees and may not get jobs, you know, they're all rioting because of this or that or whatever. We all live on campus now. This is now everywhere in our lives. Critical theory believes that any dominant group becomes an oppressor by imposing its views on the rest of society. Just listen to what I'm saying. Any dominant group becomes an oppressor by imposing its views on the rest of society because their belief is that a dominant group automatically imposes its group. It sets the norms. So dominant groups are then automatic oppressors even without oppressive actions. So you don't have to do anything wrong to somebody, but if you're a part of a dominant class or a dominant group or a dominant race or a dominant religion or a dominant view of sexuality, you're an automatic oppressor to the alternative group. It's guilt by class, it's guilt by association. This is a quote from uh, B. Tatum, The Complexity of Identity, Who Am I? People are commonly defined as other. So if you live in the West, the predominant group of people racially are gonna be Caucasian, that's changing quickly, but it was Caucasian, at least it is in the US yet. And if you're not Caucasian, you're gonna be other at some to some degree, that's what this person is saying. People who are commonly defined as other as it relates to race or ethnicity or gender or religion or sexual orientation or socioeconomic status or age or physical or mental ability. Each of these categories has a form of oppression with it. Racism, sexism, religious oppression, anti-Semitism, heterosexism, classism, ageism, ableism, respectively. And if you're not in the dominant group on multiple things, that's called intersectionality. So if you're a woman, you're not a man. If you're a white woman, you're still privileged because you're white, but if you're a woman, you're oppressed by your male husband. If you're a black woman, there's sort of two things going on. If you're a black female lesbian, there's three. So this is called intersectionality. The more subgroups you're a part of, the more you're automatically oppressed from critical theory's viewpoint. Based on this theory, and here's where unity becomes difficult. Based on this theory, whites are oppressors, no matter what, just because you're white. Christians are oppressors, just because you're the dominant group in the West. Men are oppressors. If you're a man who has a complementarian marriage, you are the worst of men. Heterosexuals are oppressors, because it's the norm. It's what everything else is compared to. Able-bodied are oppressors, the disabled. Capitalists are oppressors. You are guilty, not if you do something wrong to somebody, you are guilty by virtue of your association with and, in, and connection to and belonging in the group. Now here's a great example of this thinking. Anne Hathaway, who I you know, like as an actress, I thought she was great in The Devil Loves Prada. I have three girls, so I watch those kind of movies. A lot of you don't know what that is. You don't know what The Devil Loves Prada is? Really? You need to get a top 100 movies you need to see list. This church is bereft of culture when it comes to movie watching. Anne Hathaway, who's a famous actress, at the 2018 Human Rights Campaign, 
accepted the National Equality Award. And what she said was very interesting. Listen to this, because this is coming from the media and Hollywood in particular and, and academic institutions, but she's a spokesperson for it. She won an award. And she's a lovely woman in so many ways. I don't agree with what she's saying here, though. It is important to acknowledge, with the exception of being a cisgender male, everything about how I was born has put me at the current center of a damaging and widely accepted myth. That myth is that gayness orbits around straightness, transgender orbits around cisgender. Cisgender is when you believe you are male because you have male parts, you're female because you have female parts, that's called cisgender. And that all race orbits around whiteness. Together, we are not going to just question this myth, we're going to destroy it. Let's tear this world apart and build a better one. So did you see what she said there? And I, and I think at the beginning of this statement, I'm going to read it one more time, but I think what she's saying is the only thing that could be worse about her would be if she was born male, because she's saying it's important to acknowledge with the exception of being a cisgender male. I'm a cisgender male. I'm a male that believes because I have certain parts, it makes me a male. I identify as a male because my parts say I am, which is now controversial. That's the first time in history that's been controversial. It's usually been easy when you have a baby in the hospital and they hand him to you, kind of look, yep, okay, that's a boy, or that's a girl, not anymore. And wait for them to decide and confuse them as much as possible along the journey. It's important to acknowledge, with the exception of being a cisgender male, everything about how I was born has put me at the current center of a damaging and widely accepted myth. That myth is that gayness orbits around straightness, transgender orbits around cisgender, and all race orbits around whiteness. And we're going to question it, we're going to destroy it, we're going to build a better world. So, social justice movement, dependent upon critical theory, is this academic view that the dominant group is automatically an oppressor of these secondary groups that are described as the other. So what about justice? Ten things I believe. One, all Christians should care about all of God's image bearers equally and without exception. Period. We shouldn't rank people in this world that are like us, that look like us, that think like us, that act like us, that have our values is more important than anyone else. There's no room in Christianity for racism. There's no room in Christianity for not an absolute care for everyone equally because they're God's image bearers. That means at the moment of conception, that means with the most aged. We have the highest motivation. The God of the universe is telling us to care about the human family because they reflect the personality of God. And historically, it's people of faith that have attacked the world's greatest injustices. Christianity does have a good track record. It's got some problems too, but it's got a good track record of fighting against injustice all over the world and raising peoples up. However... 150 years ago in my country in the South, if you were a preacher, I hope I would have been on the right side of that. I hope had I lived back then, and we all know I'm 
couple of centuries off where I should have lived in history anyway. But if I would have lived back then, I would hope I would be putting my life at risk to fight against the oppression of people of color in my country, my other country. The residential school issue up here wasn't necessarily all born out of bad motives, but clearly there was a point in many situations where these children were not valued the way they needed to be valued. When I look at the Bible, I'm a little disappointed that certain things aren't just categorically you know, sort of called out. And if you've ever looked at the Bible and some of the epistles and you see Paul telling slaves to obey their masters, I, I, I hope that troubles you a little bit. And you've got to be wondering, what was going on that the Bible doesn't say what it should say because southern preachers use that and slave owners use that against slaves? And here is what I think is going on. I'm just, this is an aside, but I want you to understand this because I look at it and I'm like, what was going on in Paul's mind? The Old Testament was a theocracy. So the Old Testament had civil laws about how you treated other people. And there was slavery in the Old Testament, but it was a different kind of slavery. It would be like if I had great debts and I could never pay them off, I would go to Aaron Mackey and I would say, Aaron, I'm in big trouble. I'm gonna lose the farm, I'm gonna lose my house. Can I be your servant for X number of years? And you take care of me, but I work for you. That's what slavery was in the Old Testament. It was more like a temporary indentured servitude where you know, I, my life was in his hands, but I and my family might work for him, but then in the year of Jubilee, we're all set free. You know, my debts are paid. That's not Western slavery and the ownership of a person and their children forever. But the Old Testament actually had rules about this so that people's dignity would be protected and they'd be set free. When you get to the New Testament, what you've got is the gospel in a pagan world. Rome didn't care what the Old Testament said. They didn't know there was an Old Testament. And I believe that Paul and Jesus believed that as the gospel penetrated a pagan world, people would naturally emancipate each other, of course, as they recognize that you are my brother or my sister in Christ, which is what Paul appeals to, or Philemon, you know, the book of Philemon is appealed to on that basis, that this slave who ran away is coming back, treat him like a brother. He is your brother. So the gospel would ultimately free all people. But even the Bible sometimes goes a little short of what we would hope in that. I hope that explains a little bit why. Jesus and Paul were not trying to teach revolution. But they wanted it to happen naturally. We, as Christ followers, can never be the uncaring. Second, language matters. And critical theory has taken the language of God in history and changed the meaning. And that's a problem, because if somebody says, aren't you for social justice, if you say no, well, you sound like, that's awful. Of course you're for social justice. That doesn't mean you believe everything in the social justice movement. This is where this gets really dicey. Deconstructionism is, a, is sort of what goes on in academia, where you take historical books, historical texts, and you take them out of context and say, we're going to use the same language, but we're going to give it modern meaning. All right, so the other day, I, I was hungry, I wanted some brownies. And we happened to have a brownie mix in the cupboard, 
And so I, I asked Dee Dee, hey, would you make some brownies? And she wasn't you know, going to do it fast enough, so I thought, I'll make some brownies myself. I know how to cook. I don't want my wife to know that, but I do know how to cook really well. I also know how to clean windows, clean carpets. I just don't tell her these things because then she knows I'm capable. So I looked at the brownies, and evidently we eat healthier brownies, so we didn't use vegetable oil, we use coconut oil. Do you know how it is, hard it is to put coconut paste in brownies and stir it? Because it's like paste. But evidently it's healthier, and so I smell like coconut. It's just coming out of my pores. But anyway, I made this brownie mix. I poured it in. I put it in the oven. It came out, and I looked at that wonderful set, uh, this, this pan of brownies, God's gift to my sort of need for a brownie. And I looked at it, and I said to my wife, I said, the box is wrong. It says 12 servings. I only see two or three or four. <laughs> so what I did was I deconstructed, I deconstructed the standard. They say a serving is, you know, a square like that. I say a serving is a square like this. I'm deconstructing the brownie box. Well, that's what's happening with the language of justice. Critical theory has taken the brownie box of the Bible in the dictionary and they've completely changed the language. John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, says this, it's no good having the same vocabulary if we're using different dictionaries. And that's what's going on. Biblical justice is about conformity to hundreds of ethical standards. Critical theory is about taking away power and influence from any group that has set a historic norm and is sensed to be oppressed by a minority. Justice has never meant this in the history of the dictionary or the Bible. So that's a problem. Because we're using the same language, but we don't mean the same thing. Next, empathy and sensitivity versus dismissiveness is a good place for all groups to start. All right, so when I get into a discussion with people who are like strong advocates of this, and this is usually young white liberals, you know, I could have a much better conversation with a person of color than a white liberal. They're like cats. I'm too, sorry. Can we take that out of the tape? <laughs> but I've been in these discussions. And, and, you know, the word white privilege, which I think was coined in 1988, I don't appreciate the word. I think there's better words. And I think privilege has less to do with race than economic status in the U.S. But that's just my view. It's my son's view as well, who's a recent graduate of university. I know whole sections of the U.S. with a lot of poor white people like really poor white people, whole sections, like states. But that's my white-splaining, to use their term. But I never wondered as a child if opportunity would be withheld from me based on my race. I knew I could do anything. I knew I could be anything. And I knew I could achieve anything. And I never doubted it. I knew there would be no barriers for me. So people like me do need to try to know and understand what we don't know and understand, and that is the experience of another person. That's fair. I only know what it's like to live out my life as a white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, in a complementarian marriage, which means I check all the boxes as the worst human on earth from a critical theory standpoint. Biblically, 
People are held accountable for their own actions, not others' actions. Here's the real problem that we're going to run into with critical theory. The Old Testament law and prophets make this clear. In the Old Testament, how you were treated by God and society was largely a legal meritocracy. You know, sort of you reaped what you sowed. That's the way the world worked. Groups of people may have been guilty of sins in general, but nobody was guilty because they just existed in a group. If you didn't participate in an unlawful action, you, didn't, you weren't guilty of anything. By biblical definition, critical theory and the social justice movement is unjust on that point. It's not fair. It assumes guilt because you're a part of a group. Next, biblically, due process is essential for justice. There were rules about trying people. One of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt not bear false witness. It's because so much that would be decided about justice would be in a court setting, and they're saying one of the top ten things you can never do is be dishonest in a justice-seeking situation. And that is being thrown out today. In America today, it is turning into, particularly when you have these charged situations, it's turning into sort of mob rule. And I'm running out of time here, but I got a story here, and I'm going to read it, and if we go to 12 o'clock, you just have to forgive me. We own and operate Gibson's Bakery in the city of Oberlin, Ohio, home to Oberlin College. For more than 130 years, our family worked hard to build a reputation on our homemade baked goods, candy and ice cream, and on our commitment to our community. The bakery has long been a popular stop among students, residents, and returning alumni. Our family and business reputation was a source of pride for generations, but all that changed in 2016 and November 9, when a student attempted to shoplift two bottles of wine from our store. Police arrested the student, but the next day, hundreds of people gathered in protest. From, bull, from bullhorns, they called for a boycott. The sidewalk and park across the street from our store were filled with protesters, holding signs labeling us racists and white supremacists. The arrest, they said, was the result of racial profiling. The narrative was set and there was no combating it. Despite the lack of evidence, our family was accused of a long history of racism and discrimination. Oberlin College officials ordered the suspension of the more than 100-year business relationship with our bakery, and our customers dwindled. We were officially on trial, not in a courtroom, but in the court of public opinion, and we were losing. As time went on, the truth began to emerge. The shoplifter confessed to his crime and said the arrest wasn't racially motivated, but the college refused to help set the record straight by issuing a public statement that our family is not racist and does not have a history of racial profiling or discrimination. The damage was done. The truth was irrelevant. In a small city like Oberlin, having the largest business and employer against you is more than enough to seal your fate. Running out of options, we pursued a lawsuit against the college. Two regional law firms agreed to take our case. What few understand is that this situation not only affected our business, it touched every aspect of our lives. In the end, the words of my father inspired me to continue the fight. He said, in my life, I've done everything I could to treat all people with dignity and respect. And now, nearing the end of my life, I'm going to die being labeled as a racist. There wasn't enough time, he feared, to set the record straight. His legacy has been tarnished, and he felt powerless to stop it. I had to see this case through. This experience has taught me that reputations are fragile. They take a lifetime to build, but only moments to destroy. In an age where social media can spread lies at an alarming rate, what happened to Gibson's Bakery could happen to anyone. That is the world we live in. It's not just. 
Today, in America, it is justice by the mob in situations like this. And you are guilty until proven innocent. And it won't matter. There won't be enough retractions. Unity in the body of Christ is not possible if whole groups are branded as evil by race. Christ is our identity. The whole point of the New Testament is we're bringing together groups of people that would never otherwise be together. It is Jesus that is the reason that I serve in a church board that has Matthew Opani and Stephen Chuang, very different backgrounds, very different races. Why are we together serving Jesus? Because of Jesus. He's the unifier. We have an identity in Christ. That's what brings us together. That's why different people have commonality. But if we come together and always assume the worst about each other, we can never have unity in the church. Churches are going to become racially centered. You're going to have white churches. You're going to have black churches. You're going to have brown churches. We can never be together as God's image bearers if we are going to make group status a sin. The Bible sets moral and identity norms that make God the oppressor. We're going to talk about this next week. I'm going to have a special guest here who would fit in some of these oppressed groups based on group status. We're going to talk about human sexuality in the culture. But the Bible presents Christianity as the truth. But Christians are an, oppressed, an oppressor and Muslims are an oppressed group because they're not Christian in America. So if you're a part of a Muslim, you're, you're a part of the other group. That's an oppressed group. So here's the problem. Can you have a discussion about whether Christianity is superior to Islam, whether Jesus is superior to Muhammad? Not anymore, because I'm just an oppressor. I'm not in a search for truth. I'm a white Christian. So we'll talk about that next week. But the Bible sets norms on truth. It sets norms on human sexuality and heterosexuality. It sets norms on male and female, possibly roles in relationships. Not to go there again. So when God speaks, does he become the oppressor when subgroups disagree? The fruit tells all about the tree. Jesus Christ, AD 30. That's a quote, pretty much. Critical theory is not leading us to a better future. It's leading to pettiness. It's leading to microaggressions and, and you're offending people because everyone's looking to be wounded. Self-righteousness by many of the people who believe this because they believe the only sin is being an oppressor. Other than that, they believe a lot of stuff is okay. Riots, lawlessness, win-at-any-cost mentality, hatred. Jesus said, look at the fruit of any movement. There are professional group litmus tests now, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have been exposed to these. The medical community certainly will. The psychological community certainly will be. Where for you to get licensed in a group, they want you to sign off on that you believe that you know, human sexuality is not, you know, I, I believe the word binary is coming to mind, but they want you to basically say it's just this fluid situation. And in order to get in that professional group, you better sign off on that because that's the predominant theory coming out of this movement. And there are some people who have a hard time getting jobs for having any kind of traditional view of anything in the next 30 years. And finally, society's can and should work to champion justice, access, and opportunity for those they have historically harmed, and it will be messy. And the reason I say it will be messy is this. 
you know, I've got a son who just went through university. He's a white, Christian, male, heterosexual. You know, he checks all the wrong boxes. He's a firefighter in the military, and he's an engineer. In both situations, he's the end of the line, and he knows it, and he's experienced that. And he knows about how college testing is weighted based on what race you're in and so on. And actually, well, I won't get into this, but anyway, you know, he sees what's out there and he's had to go to the classes where they talk about this stuff. And he believes in a meritocracy. But as a firefighter, trying to get in a fire station in the U.S., he would be at the end of the list, except he does have military training, which bumps him up. As an engineer, he saw this, where a professor would come in a classroom and look at a female engineer student who he doesn't even know and just say, you want a job? No engineer, you know, no, no, no question beyond that because in the U.S., to get government contracts in construction, you have to have a certain percentage of minorities and women on your staffs. So, I, so here's, here's my point. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying it's complicated because I think when society has so hurt a group of people, like in Canada or the U.S. with Native peoples or like in the U.S. with the black community, some of that stuff does stick for generations because you have set people behind. It is true. I know the American theme is everyone can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but when your boots are about six inches to two feet in mud, it's a little harder. And so I think for people like me who check all the boxes of the oppressor groups in critical theory, it's easy to just push back and say, that's not fair. It's not fair that my son is growing up in that situation. But it's also unfair of me to not acknowledge that some people and generations of people are set behind because of things that did happen 100 years ago or 50 years ago. So I think society does have a role in helping groups to have access, whether that's giving them advantage in educational opportunity, helping with tuition. I don't know what it is. All I'm saying is affirmative action is here for a reason. I don't think it's all bad, but it's messy to try to figure out when it's gone far enough or not. That's all I'm saying. But we do have a role in helping people to get back up that we have put down. And finally, the church can and should be a creative arena for ministries that champion justice, access, and opportunity for those who've experienced injustice and oppression. What an opportunity to show the world that we care about people, that we care about their experiences, that we want them to learn to speak English better when they're coming into a country like Canada. It will help their employment situation, which we have people here doing on Tuesday mornings. What an opportunity. What, what, what about ministries that help women who've maybe been subjected to sex trafficking, help them get back on their feet, love them the way Jesus loved them? What about the kind of ministries that help people in all kinds of situations where they've experienced some sort of oppression or they're new to the country and they need to be lifted up, they need some help? And what I mean by that is this. If, if you've got an idea and, and it relates to some of this, I'm happy to hear it. Now, don't come to us and say, Bethany should do this. Pastor Paul, you should do this. Because we're just going to say, yeah, sorry, we will help you do it. If God has laid it on your heart, we'll support you, we'll promote it, we'll champion it. We're not looking for your ideas about what Steve and I have to do. We're looking for your ideas about what we can do to be a champion for the image of God in all people that God has made. God, we thank you for your word. And I know that this is just incredibly controversial in our world today because we all care about justice. It may look a little differently depending on our our background and what we know or don't know or believe about this issue. 
And I just pray that you would give us wisdom. Most of all, that you would help us to be people who would be able to fulfill Isaiah, or Micah 6.8, that we would be people who, who do justice, who, who practice kindness, and who walk humbly with you. And then it doesn't matter what, what motivation we're coming from. We're, we're, we're doing the right thing, which you've asked us to do. Help us to love all people, all the time, equally, and to help those who really have been truly oppressed to live a better life, to have a human existence like we have, to be bettered, to enjoy their experience on this earth. Help us to be people who care about that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.